From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On today's show, the Sanger Theater in New Orleans is approaching its 97th birthday. We honor this iconic building with a look back at the theater's history. Plus, we hear how Louisianans can donate blood all throughout the month of January. But first, we have a new governor in Louisiana. The Times-Picayune's New Orleans Advocates editorial director and columnist Stephanie Grace has been reporting on his first week in office. And she joins us now. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So now that we have a new governor and legislature, how's that relationship shaping up? Well, it's looking to be much more cooperative than it was when John Bell Edwards was governor. Of course, he's a Democrat who worked with the majority Republican legislature Often, so there were really some common, you know, there were some measures that passed with bipartisan support, criminal justice reform, things like that, of course, you know, fixing the budget. But there was also often tension um, over social issues, really, was kind of where a lot of it came down. Um, The Landry era is going to be different. Both the House Speaker and the Senate President kind of got the job with Jeff Landry's blessing. Um, On the issues where Edwards and lawmakers often clashed, uh, specifically culture war matters like laws aimed at transgender kids and COVID restrictions, things like that, guns, Landry is right there with the lawmakers whose bills sometimes got vetoed by Edwards. Well, given all that, what can we expect from the legislature? Well, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of the bills that Edwards did veto return, come back, because they're going to get a friendlier hearing from the governor. Uh, The legislature already overrode Edwards on restricting gender-affirming care, but there are other bills governing things like the use of pronouns in schools that I think we'll see. Uh, We'll likely see legislation on libraries, on permitless carry of guns, things like that. Um, An interesting note from Landry's inaugural speech was that he focused on education and specifically on what he kind of called repeatedly the indoctrination of students by teachers. And that's a pretty strong signal that his agenda, you know, will be on the on the very conservative side. Um, again, John Bell Edwards was was kind of a, a considered a pro-teacher governor. Um, and, you know, and I do think he's going to be in line with the new legislature and also notably the new state education board where, you know, which has a more conservative majority and several appointments by the governor. So he's already made those. Uh, more broadly, I think we'll be talking about school choice, probably. And the governor did allude to that in his inaugural speech, uh, talking about the use of public money for, in some cases, private education uh, vouchers. People used to use the term vouchers. There's kind of a more broad term now that they use, education savings account, which could include vouchers, you know, public money paying for private schools, but also other education expenses that such as tutoring. Um, So keep an eye out for that. That's kind of a hot topic nationally, and I think it will become one here. Well, before we go, we have an upcoming special session next week. What do we know about that? Uh, We know it's going to be more interesting than we thought. (laughs) You know, basically, we we understood that the governor was going to have to call a very quick special session to redo the congressional districts. And if you've been following this, you know that the courts have ordered Louisiana to create a second, uh, basically majority black district um, in time to have the congressional elections in the fall. So the state doesn't have much time. They need to do that. They're going to do that. It seems like the people fighting it are, are on board now. 
But because there is a special session and because the governor gets to say, these are the topics you consider in a special session, he added a whole bunch of other stuff that we didn't talk about in the campaign and that does not need to be done immediately. But that is probably that probably covers a lot of, again, very conservative um, policy measures. One of them that's super, that people are really focused on is changing the party primaries, changing the open primary in Louisiana to party primaries. And this is something that various people have tried in the past. Uh, it tends to be like very conservative Republicans and then also very liberal Democrats who kind of like the idea of having party primaries because they might create more of a, a candidate who is in line with that party's agenda, you know, a more conservative Republican, a more liberal Democrat. But it's very controversial. People here are really used to voting in this open primary system. A lot of legislator, legislators like it because that's how they got elected. And there's a real question of whether the, the many, many thousands of people in the state who are not registered in a party would kind of lose their ability to meaningfully participate in elections. So this is going to be a big fight and a big deal. Stephanie Grace, editorial director and columnist for the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Next month marks the 97th birthday of the Sanger Theater in New Orleans. But the theater, which originally opened in 1927, is just one of multiple Sanger theaters throughout the South that offered patrons the experience of seeing vaudeville entertainment, motion pictures, and later, touring performances. And in its nearly 100 years of operation, the Sanger Theater in New Orleans has borne witness to many things, including Prohibition, the Great Depression, and Hurricane Katrina. Here to tell us more about the history of this beloved Crescent City institution and the story behind the brothers who started this theater empire is David Skinner, general manager of the Sanger Theater in New Orleans. Thanks for being here. My pleasure to be here today. So can you start just by giving us some more background on the Sanger family? I know the parents immigrated from Europe to Norfolk, Virginia. They were a Jewish family, moved to Shreveport so that the father could take on the role of rabbi at the local synagogue. So what were the early endeavors for these brothers, Abe and Julian, and how did they get into theater? As I understand, the brothers uh, made their way from Norfolk to Shreveport. They were pharmacists and uh, they had one of the old, you may recall seeing some of these through the years where you would go up to a little viewfinder, put a, a penny in and turn it and see a little movie uh, in this little machine in their drugstore. And uh, it was uh, through a couple years, they noticed that they were making as much money off of people coming in looking at these little movies as they were being pharmacists. And they decided to expand that. And originally... Uh, in Shreveport, uh, Shreveport bought the Strand Theater uh, and put in vaudeville acts and so forth. And uh, that was successful. So they decided to uh, start building theaters and they did. And they built uh, about 60 theaters throughout the U.S., Mexico and South America. And uh, the, the largest one they built was a Sanger here in New Orleans, opened in 1927. This ended up being their their home port, their brothers moved down to New Orleans, and they operated their entire theater empire right out of New Orleans. How did they kind of get their businesses up and running, and what were some of the other places in the South besides New Orleans uh, and in the Caribbean where they established these theaters? 
Well, I'm not sure exactly where they were throughout the in the South American Caribbean. I know in, in America they had uh, about 50 theaters through here. Uh, closest ones over in uh, there's one in Pensacola. There's one up in Mississippi. I don't think there's any more uh, left in uh, Louisiana. But most all of the theaters uh, through the years have been uh, ravaged by time, and and uh, they've all been demolished. And there's only a, a handful left today. Yeah, well, I was reading about how the theater opened in 1927 in New Orleans. There was this big grand opening. So what can you tell us about that and what the theater going experience was like for the patrons? And, you know, what kind of performances were they seeing? Well, back then, you know, it was it was primarily vaudeville. Uh, the, the theater itself was, was built for vaudeville. It has a very small stage uh, back then. Uh, more so uh, back then than it was today, uh, coming to the Sanger was a true family event. People would, uh, patrons would uh, dress up, men would have on their, their Sunday best clothes to come to a, an event at the Sanger, show at the Sanger. Uh, when you look back at some of the older pictures, you'll see that the footprint hasn't changed. At the time, it would hold 4,000 people. Uh, the balcony itself was all bleachers, uh, and they would give uh, 12 inches to everybody's butt. Uh, today that really won't work too well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we have changed our seating configuration and coming out of Katrina, we put permanent seats throughout the entire theater and our capacity is reduced from a total of 4,000. We're down now to 28. Got it. We are speaking with David Skinner, general manager of the Sanger Theater in New Orleans, about the history of the theater and the Sanger Brothers. So when the Great Depression came around in 1929, how did that impact the theater and the brothers, Abe and Julian? What happened to all of their businesses? Well, they fell on tough times like a lot of people did. And uh, in order to uh, save what was left, I guess, of the family fortune, uh, I'm told, I wasn't there, obviously, that they uh, needed to sell uh, to maintain uh, uh, what they had of their current livelihood. And they... Uh, sold the entire Sanger chain to Paramount Theaters. And then I know that the theater sort of had a rebirth in the late 70s, early 80s. Tell us a little bit about why the theater had been somewhat neglected and how it was sort of reborn in 1980. The, the theater itself was uh, suffering from a lack of activity. There was really no uh, what we call today touring Broadway series. And in the, the late 70s, uh, a man named Alan Becker, uh, along with a couple other uh, people, but primarily Alan Becker, bought the theater. And uh, Alan was a theater enthusiast, uh, was involved with Broadway in New York, and he decided to put together uh, touring Broadway and take it out on the road, not only to New Orleans, but to various other cities. And so Alan, through his efforts, um, he actually birthed uh, what we now call today Broadway Across America, BAA. And uh, because of that, he uh, started to bring shows to New Orleans. That changed our exposure in the industry. Concerts starting started to come here. So uh, things changed at Sanger. We got activity. And it's really all because of one person, Alan Becker. Well, like many buildings in New Orleans, the Sanger Theater was heavily impacted by Hurricane Katrina. So can you just tell us how the building weathered the storm, what the impacts were to the infrastructure there, and how it bounced back? 
Well, the theater was severely damaged. Uh, if you would stand in the uh, the main arcade going into the theater, uh, you would be standing in about four feet of water. Now, that may not sound like a whole lot of water, four feet, but you have to understand that in the theater, we have a basement and a sub-basement. Uh, the basement is uh, restrooms and, and bar areas and so forth. The sub-basement is heating, our boiler, our HVAC, our offices, and so forth. So all of that was flooded. The seating area, obviously, was uh, in, in the main orchestra area was all flooded out. Theater sat here for a few years while we really analyzed what was the best plan to revitalize, to get the, the venue uh, reconstructed and get it reopened. Uh, through uh, various efforts, uh, we sold the venue, uh, the Sanger to the City, $4, and then we turned around and signed a 52-year agreement to run the building. Uh, but what that did for us was open up certain uh, tax credits that we would not, as a, a private entity, have uh, any way to uh, achieve those revenues. So because of that, we were able to garner together $52 million to wow. renovate the uh, the venue. And we undertook a four-year program to uh, literally redo the venue top to bottom, uh, repaint areas in the ceiling, and the arcade areas, the seating areas, uh, areas that some of them had never been repainted since 1927. Some had four or five coats of paint over them. And what we did is we brought in artists and uh, reconstructed the venue to the closest we could uh, as how it looked when it opened in 1927. So it was a painstaking effort. Uh, but if anybody walks in today, they, I think, will be impressed by the way the, uh, the Sanger looks. I certainly am. Well, David, before we go, can you just share some of your favorite memories from working at the Sanger? Any stories that have really stuck with you that speak to how significant and special this place is? Well, you know, it holds a, a, a special spot in uh, really in the heart of most New Orleanians. When you, when you look around the city, uh, it's a place where uh, almost everybody will say they saw their first concert. They, they saw their first Broadway show. People have memories of seeing uh, some of the uh, the old touring artists from Rex Harrison to Liz Taylor to Richard Burton. Uh, your old movie stars, the famous movie stars, they all made their stops in New Orleans. And David Skinner, general manager of the Sanger Theater in New Orleans. Thanks so much for being here and happy birthday to the theater. Thank you very much. In three more years, we'll be at our 100th birthday. And I'm sure we'll talk again. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. January is National Blood Donor Month, and Oshner Health is encouraging donations by offering pop-up drives throughout the Southeast region. Here to tell us more about who can donate, how to donate, and why we're experiencing a critical shortage of donations from certain blood types is Dr. Jennifer O'Brien, Director of Transfusion Medicine at Oshner Health. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
you know, we kind of see a lot of these national something months and we see a big campaign around some sort of cause. So why do you think it's important to have a national blood donor month? And what is the initiative behind that? Blood is a very scarce resource. Blood is needed for transfusions for patients about one every five seconds, potentially. There's a, a unit of blood being transfused. Blood is being transfused to patients with trauma, with cancer, like leukemias, lymphomas, surgeries, and also for pediatrics and neonates. And can you just tell us about some of these locations? Where can people donate? And are there any locations outside of typical medical settings? Yes. Donors can donate uh, at the Oshner Medical Center here in Jefferson Highway. They can also donate at some of our fixed locations as well as our mobile locations. All of this information can be found at oshner.org backslash blood bank or by calling the donor center. Can you let me know who is eligible to donate? There are many different methods of determining who is eligible to donate. Some simple information is you need to be healthy. Uh, you need to be at least 17 years of age. There are some cases where 16-year-olds can donate with permission from their parents, but you also need to weigh at least about 110 pounds. Other things that we'll do during the process of evaluating for your donation is we'll review your medications We'll review whether you've had any recent vaccinations uh, or any risk for potential exposure to certain viruses. One of the things that we do do, we do do a hematocrit check that assesses whether your hemoglobin is high enough or your iron is high enough. We also assess your vital signs during those initial questionnaire time period. I know we're currently experiencing a critical shortage, specifically of platelets and type O red cells. Why is that? Shortage of platelets is because of the fact that these are the components of your blood that help stop bleeding. So you need those platelets in order to make those platelet plugs to basically create beginning the creating of the scab within the body. One of the issues with the platelets is they expire very quickly. So they're only good for about five days. So we're in constant need of platelet donors. The ideal platelet donors would be patients with blood type A, AB, or B. Now for the red cells, group O, and especially O negative, those red cells don't have any of the antigens on them that would make a person with blood type A automatically attack those cells. So they those group O red cells are acceptable by every patient. Uh, and that's why they're used so heavily for your traumas, yeah. your neonates. There's universal uh, donor, yep. The, uni the, the universal red cell donor. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I know it wasn't that long ago that homosexual men were finally allowed to donate blood. This came after years of not being allowed due to concerns over the spread of HIV and AIDS, but many felt this addition to the list was long overdue. So can you tell us about why it took so long and the impact that we've seen since expanding this eligibility? For individuals that engage with male-male uh, sexual contact, there was risk for HIV, um, hepatitis, 
these risks, these viruses can be transmitted in the blood. So over the years, there were certain strategies that were put into place to try to make sure that the blood supply was as safe as possible for the recipient. Initially, we didn't have very good testing methodology, so it was based upon uh, the male-male sexual contact. However, over the years, our ability to test for viruses of uh, HIV, hepatitis uh, B, and hepatitis C has significantly improved and narrowed that window period where a person may be infected with the virus, but our testing methodologies can't detect it. That window period is now down to about three months. Hmm. And so that's why over time, the deferral periods uh, has decreased. Other thing is that the individuals now, we've developed a newer questionnaire that assesses individual risk assessment. So many of the deferrals that were previously in place for several decades have now been disappeared or been reduced down to three months. So we encourage anybody that used to be previously deferred to come back and possibly rejoin. Great. We are speaking with Dr. Jennifer O'Brien, Director of Transfusion Medicine at Oshner Health, about ways to donate blood during the month of January. I know we saw blood donations drop during the pandemic. Have the numbers returned to pre-pandemic levels, or are we still playing catch-up? We are still playing catch-up. We are always in need of blood for our patients. The Again, patients that have cancer, leukemia, lymphomas, trauma, OB patients, surgery patients, and pediatric patients. But we always need blood. And we do need a diverse population of blood because every individual is unique. There are over 350 different types of antigens on those red blood cells. And so having a broad population for donating blood allows uh, blood su suppliers be able to match the individual with the blood that they need. And speaking of the importance of a diverse blood bank, Louisiana was actually one of the last states to stop segregating blood donations. It actually wasn't until 1972 when the state integrated blood banks. So can you explain to us why segregating blood isn't just morally reprehensible, but also a disadvantage scientifically and medically? Uh, one of the most important things with the, having a diverse blood supply is the ability to match the individual patient with what they need after they've developed antibodies. With over the 350 different antigens, it does mean that there are differences from every person to every donor. So there is always a risk with every transfusion of developing antibodies. Once you develop those antibodies, we have to find a match of a red cell that does not have those antibodies. There are some antibodies that are so rare that, um, like, for instance, I had a patient with an anti-vel once that uh, we needed to import blood from Norway, England, and Spain because her blood type was so rare. Dr. Jennifer O'Brien, Director of Transfusion Medicine at Oshner Health, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, 
You've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, the Times-Picayune's New Orleans Advocates, Editorial Director and Columnist Stephanie Grace, Director of Transfusion Medicine at Oshner Health, Dr. Jennifer O'Brien, and General Manager of the Sanger Theater in New Orleans, David Skinner. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.